0: Calcutta. The year is 1828. Another ship has pulled into the bustling port, bringing with it hams and figs, ale, Madeira glasses, perfumes, jewellery and so, so much more. Some of these will be lavishly furnished in the homes of colonial officials. Others will be adorned by the native creme de la creme of British India. Even more, we'll traverse the waters to places far beyond Calcutta. As the boat curved into the city's shores, a hundred kilometres away in a small village, one widow returned to her home. She had just posted a letter to a newspaper, Samachar Darpan, a letter that is so much more than just her story. We will return to the letter and to her. her Who I have named in my heart Shanti. But that ship docking at Calcutta's port was testament to a changing world order. It carried cloth. Cloth was now an import to India. Global trade had begun to shift.
1: Hello and welcome to What About Work, an audio series produced by Good Business Lab. Good Business Lab seeks to globally transform the lives of low-income workers through rigorous research and evidence-based solutions. What About Work talks about the past and current experiences of workers in labour-intensive industries and other emerging sectors from different geographies, be it garment, automobile, fast food, platform gig work, or any other.
0: Our first episode is on the garment sector, how it has changed, how it hasn't, and how the lives of countless women across India are delicately woven to it. A French missionary who lived in southern India's Madras presidency during the early 19th century, Abbe Dubois found countless widows and other women out of work who used to support their families by spinning and selling cotton. A headmaster of a weaving station and the industry's department surveyor for the Crown, J.M. Cook said of Shah Jahanpur, Here, as in other places, the women folk take a large share in producing the cloth. Even when the male member of a family was weaving on a fly shuttle loom, I noticed there was also household looms on which the women weave. That was in 1911. Today, Shah Jahanpur comes under the northern state of Uttar Pradesh. What these two accounts show is that women were often engaged in certain fabric production processes. There may have been differences in how they carried out their labour as opposed to men, weaving at home being a big one. Still, they depended on industries of fabric for sustenance. But then English yarn began flooding the global supply chain. Raw cotton was siphoned out of places like India, Egypt and America and yarn was pumped back in. Two years before Shanti sent her letter to Samajar Darpan, 100 million pounds in weight of cotton was exported from British India. But to understand why that number is shocking, let us rewind a bit. In the 9 years between 1789 and 1798, only less than half a million of cotton was exported. Then, in just one year of 1826, 100 million. And it didn't stop there. Exports tripled by 1860 and after six years had risen to a staggering 750 million pounds of cotton. Spinning and weaving became unprofitable. They were now outsourced. The empire of cotton had succeeded in displacing countless women. Women like Shanti.
1: The application of a spinner from Shantipur, Nadia. I have married off three daughters, arranged my father-in-law's funeral and taken care of my natal family, all on my own, mind you. How after all this do I now have no means of livelihood? The weavers have stopped collecting from my house. I pray to the spinners of England, take pity.
0: That was Shanti's letter. At least, what I imagine it would say. Her story was mentioned in a footnote. A footnote in a gutting paper by Ratnapalli Chatterjee. A footnote that has endlessly fascinated me and that has seamlessly captured how colonialism restitched local economies. What these stories of dispossession also show is that women were critical to the production of fabric. Capital needed them and administrators learned this in surprising ways. Historian Santosh Kumar Rai spoke of Muradabad in a recent article of his. Muradabad today lies 200 kilometers almost directly east of New Delhi. English officials in the district introduced a government training program in 1911, the same year that J.M. Cook was touring a different part of the region, if you remember. The programme would educate weavers on the modern machine looms and shift the site of production from the domestic or workshop model to the labour-intensive factory model. The weavers refused. They claimed that without the women who assist them at home, they were unable to carry out production. In response, officials came up with a familiar solution – scholarships. Women who accompanied their husbands to the fly shuttle loom would receive scholarship amounts an appealing offer, but strict gender segregation, forced domestic responsibilities, and a lack of real will to implement it on behalf of the administration plagued the program. So once again, women were left stranded. But they adapted, or at least tried to when they could. When they were not entirely displaced, they were reabsorbed into other folds of fabric making. Girls and women threaded their way through many operations. Cutting, sewing, stitching, embroidering, all carried out within the space of the home or in small workshops. In some contexts, like jute production, they laboured at factories. And they still do. When distress rains, women are first to pay the price. Even today, their prospects are first to shrink, last to recover. But the industry that once caused their upheaval has now become one of the largest sources of formal employment for them. That's the sound of an automatic power loom, just one of many that dominates smaller enterprises producing saris in India. But let's take a step back. Imagine that sound larger, louder, more numerous, all forming a cacophony. This was the noise that welcomed most workers in the textile industry throughout the 19th century. Technological advancements in the 18th century, like John Kay's fly shuttle, the spinning jenny, and the power loom, significantly scaled up production of cloth and ensured that the textile industry in England was industrialized in a manner that eroded earlier forms of weaving. The industrialist Henry Ford's famous assembly line model, where parts move from workstation to workstation where workers assemble them, was adopted by factory flows across the world a century later. But these technological advancements would be obsolete without the labour power that made something of them. Labour power that included the blood and sweat of women. In many countries across South Asia, women make up a significant portion of the garment sector's workforce. More than a quarter in Nepal 8 out of 10 in Sri Lanka, 60% in India, in Bangladesh, highest still, and in Pakistan, it's the second largest employer of women.
1: The division of labour within the factory uh, mirrors the microcosm and the hierarchy of social differences that is outside the factory.
0: Economist and Senior Research Fellow at Good Business Lab, Soumya Dhanraj, provides more context hiding behind these numbers.
1: For instance, um, when I enter a factory, I see rows and rows of production lines where women are sitting behind these sewing machines, right? Uh, Women operate the sewing machines, whereas male workers are in the minority in these uh, sewing lines. They're actually concentrated in very different uh, sections of the factory. Uh, For instance, they predominate ironing, packing, cutting, security guards and so on women are also more likely to be helpers and less likely to be line supervisors and quality controllers. In fact, if you go further up the ladder, female supervisors are almost absent in certain factories. If you go further up in the managerial positions, such as HR manager and director, these are almost exclusively held by men only right so even within the factories men hold the positions which have more decision making power which have more authority and even though this is a garment industry and it employs majority of women workers so garment industry though is highly female intensive it is also highly gender segregated in terms of occupation
0: it is women who still continue to produce the fabric we wear, that we sleep under, that we live on. What are their stories? Their concerns? Their ambitions? March 8th is International Women's Day. It was on March 8th, 1917, that women garment workers in today's St. Petersburg of Russia left their work in several factories, which then led to mass strike. According to political thinker Leon Trotsky. Everyone was out into the streets. Some sources say 9,000 women strikers first engulfed the city, then known as Petrograd. It was women, including those working with garment, who made change a possible hope instead of an impossible ideal. When it comes to South Asia, these women are typically remembered only in times of extreme crises. Often, they have to pay for recognition with fires, hazards and death but the complicated realities they remain in are rarely given close attention. Our next episode hopes to counter this. It will dive into an often understudied aspect of the working environment that impacts women in the garment sector immensely. Soft skills. Soft skills are not just critical for white-collar work. They often form the backbone of blue-collar labor as well. They can be an interesting prism to understand inequities in the high pressure, high stakes world of garment. But more on that next time.
1: Thank you for tuning in today to our podcast, What About Work.
0: We understand that the histories woven through this episode are not exhaustive. You would need a lot more than 15 minutes to even think of doing that. We always welcome constructive feedback. Have anything you want to say? Follow us at Good Business Lab on Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn and we'd be happy to hear from you. What a funny phrase to say while you're the one hearing me.